I have always loved being a part of teams. Uh, there's something about that. Part of it's that I'm an extrovert. Uh, part of it is because I've discovered uh, some real joys hidden within the experience of working alongside of others to accomplish a particular goal. Um, my love for teams dates all the way back to, well, high school. A little throwback Sunday for you here. Some pictures of Pastor Chuck from his childhood. This is me uh, uh, with two of my cross-country teammates. Uh, I had hair underneath that hat back in the day. And then, of course, there's basketball. Uh, I was the guy in the far end of the field there. Um, I was thin back in the day. So you've got all kinds of things going on really great in the back in the day. My favorite team I was a part of, though, was the volleyball cheerleader team. Now, this was an informal team. And as a matter of fact, it was, it was almost a team that was um, uh, not loved by the administration of our school. We, we formed independent of the school's authority, and uh, we really had one single mission, and that was to impress the cute girls on the volleyball team by increasing attendance at the games. And so that was the overarching mission, to get these young women to think more highly of us. And that is quite a mission to build a group of young men around. Now, we had some sub-agendas associated with this, obviously having some fun, uh, encouraging a team on to victory. But what became very important to all of us by the time this two-year uh, time of joy for us completed was uh, we were on a mission to drive our principal crazy by doing cheers he found inappropriate. Now, each game, the rebellious teens that we were, we would say a cheer and our principal would call one or two of us into the office and say, that was kind of inappropriate. And he didn't care much for us to begin with. And so what we would do is slightly alter another cheer and get another call the next week. And after a while, the, the, the interplay between us and our, our principal, whose name was Al, and so we said Al is our principal, and so we all got shirts that said Al's our pal on them and warm around the school, and it was a really fun mission to be a part of. And I remember these guys like they were my dear brothers. We had something in common, and there's something really exciting about working with others to accomplish a goal. And, uh, and, I, and I talk about that because, you know, today we conclude our month study on what should we do with our gifts with a focus on team. And the subtitle of our message today is Experiencing Christ Through Serving with Others. Now, to review this past month, we've used GIFT as an acronym, as pastors are wont to do. And we've talked about the following. God has given us gifts for his glory. He's given us gifts so that we can show initiative and love him. Uh, he's given us gifts that we might experience fullness through his presence. And then finally today, that we might experience him through each other on a mission team. Every so often, someone will say to me, because I'm a pastor and I do vocational ministry, they'll say, I wished I'd gone onto the mission field or I just feel like if I went on the mission field, I would have a greater purpose in life. And it's very difficult to convince them, maybe you're one of them, that you're already on the mission field. Let me propose something to you. What if today I got up in front of our church and announced that Carolyn and I had been directed by the Lord to move to Perth, Australia? Australia being one of the least churched English-speaking countries in the world. 
And we ask you to pray about coming with us and being a part of this mission team. Now, obviously, you'd have to go there and find work. You'd have to go there and figure out how you were going to get to know the culture and the people. But not long after arriving down under, you found out that God had provided a job for you in your area of expertise. And you got to do something that was really enjoyable. And, and you thought, wow, this is an amazing miracle. And then you found a place you really like to live, too, and it's affordable, and you can afford it. It's great. And you go, this is an amazing miracle. And then you started working with people on your mission team, and you're like, I really like the people at my church and in this little community that I have. And then you get to know people and their friends at work, and all of a sudden you're understanding the culture, and you're making inroads, and you're, it's like it's laid out right in front of you, like you're on a mission. Well, then, on top of that, Two years into your mission, the Lord provides a physical plant for your little team right in the middle of the area that you wanted to do ministry in in the first place. Well, I've got good news for you. Um, Carolyn has made it very clear to me we are not moving to Australia anytime soon. Uh, She has said the Lord does not want us to plant a church, and until he makes it very clear to her, we won't be planting another one. Thank you very much. Uh, more importantly, if you're plugged in here at PRISM, here in Pasadena, the mission I've described in Australia is really what we're doing here. You're, you're here for a reason. God has placed you here for a reason. You go no place by accident. You have, some of you found work that is uh, gainful employment right here in this area, doing something that you thought you always wanted to do. And yet you get to be a part of a mission team while you're doing it. You, you've been connected and work with people who you might be able to share the love of Christ with in ways that you wouldn't if you were a stranger, but no, you're working alongside of them. And yes, your little mission here was given a physical plant right in the center of the area where the mission is going to do some of its most fruitful work, right near where you live. See, this is what's going on. Somehow or another, we forget that. We think we're, we're not on the mission field. We've got to go to the mission field. And I've got to tell you, Los Angeles is a great mission field. The world is coming to Los Angeles. And we have an opportunity to reach people if we'll just see our lives as this. God has invited all of us to deepen our involvement with his mission using our gifts And as we talked about this month and want to point to today, and that is one of the ways you will deepen your sense of connection to others and community is by simply using your gifts in a mission context. It will deepen friendships. It will give you a place to sense that you're growing closer to the Lord and through others. Now, before we launch into our text today from 1 Corinthians 16, Um, I have two matters to address, actually. Uh, One is that church membership matters. Uh, In your bulletin today, you'll see our final pitch for you to consider joining and being a member at Prism Church. And, And the reason we invite people to membership at a church is because it solidifies a commitment to a community. It really does, in effect, hold us accountable for having real relationships. Otherwise, effectively, what we're saying to people all the time is, I will stay in community with you until you mess up, and then I'm going to move on. 
And, and what we'd really like to do is build a community where we're all free to make mistakes and then say, oh, okay, um, we're, we're learning and growing together. This is what Christian community is about. It's not about you here to serve me. It's about all of us here to serve each other. And so I invite you to read through that membership and really prayerfully consider whether or not God is calling you to take a step. The other thing in your bulletin today, as it has been for the past weeks, is that gift teams matter. And that's for a a really important reason. We have a, a wave of people that come into our church and who haven't been around for the first few years of it and aren't privy to commitments that we made as a church early on. And so from time to time, I have to revisit these things. And one commitment we've made as a church early on is that we were going to increase the amount of money in our budget that we gave to Mercy and Missions as our church budget grew. So right now our church budget next year will be in the neighborhood of $350,000 for our church for the year. 15% of that will go to things that we designate our Mercy and Missions. By the time it's at $500,000, that number will be 25%. And if our church ever gets to a place where we have a million dollars in offerings coming in a year, 50% of everything we take in in offerings will be designated for mercy and missions. And what this means is we won't have the traditional cash associated with staffing ourselves every time we have a need. We're going to need a church that functions like a biblical church, which is people serving in their areas of giftedness. We're not always going to be able to hire people to do the work. Now, I realize this kind of flies in the face of American Christianity, and I've been a part of churches where that was really fun to do. You get a lot more money in. You get to hire more staff. Your ministry works. You get to hire more staff. I worked on a youth staff at a relatively large church in Florida where um, I had two other full-timers working with me with college, high school, middle school students, and nine paid interns. I love hiring people. It's really fun. Uh, And and it's because I get to have more friends around throughout the course of the week. And also people who you pay to work actually have to show up. And uh, volunteers, they don't necessarily feel that same obligation. We experience that in church all the time. One of the first things I learned in seminary from Steve Brown, who was one of my professors, and he taught ecclesiology, church governance, and church life, um, said that, you know, if your dog plays checkers, you can't criticize his game. And that means if volunteers don't show up when they're supposed to, you can't really fault them for it. They're not getting paid. Now, I'm not calling you dogs. I'm just Steve Brown. And what I'd say to you is this. We don't have a choice at our church but to be a team full of people who are on missions, who are all bivocational missionaries, because we're going to give away a lot of our money which means the people that we hire in staff roles are going to have to be really good at facilitating teams because our student ministry will never have 12 staff. So these things matter, and I wanted you to be aware of them. Now as we dive into our text, again, we are at the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and not all that dissimilar to last week when we studied the introduction of Paul's letter to the Corinthians and said, you know, oftentimes we blow across these things. You know, we, we read over them fast as if there's nothing there. It's just kind of like throwaway verses. 
You know, yeah, yeah, Paul's greeting people and admonishing people and getting mad at people or whatever. And so it doesn't really hold anything for us. And we see great value to all of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we don't want to race across these verses. In fact, we see some really important things about team in this context, and particularly church teams. And so I begin our study by just reading verses 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, he strongly urged him, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Paul begins his conclusion by revisiting a key figure from his address to the Corinthian church. Somebody we'll get to know in the weeks ahead as we study the fault lines in the Corinthian church in the months of October and November. Apollos was himself an apostle and a tremendous leader and speaker. But what we see Paul doing is challenging Apollos to do something, but Apollos saying no. What this tells us is that Paul is not the pope. He is not a bishop. He does not issue decrees, and Apollos felt no obligation to just obey Paul. Paul, once again, is saying, I'm just one servant of a bunch of others. And I love the way this text is worded, too. (laughs) It, It always makes me think that in light of the difficulties associated with being in the Corinthian church as a leader, that when Paul challenged him, Apollos' response to Paul was the equivalent of saying, it really doesn't interest me to hang out with those people much anymore because he says in the text, it is not at all my will. So, I mean, you can see that this would be a difficult call for Apollos to come into. Then in the vacuum of this leadership, so Paul had been there a year and a half and he's not coming back. That's why he's writing a letter. Apollos was challenged to come and he's like, not at all my will. And so now... He's saying, you're going to have to learn to follow the leadership that you have on site. Paul is challenging the Corinthians that they need to take the opportunity they have to begin serving each other. They're not going to be able to rely on Paul or Apollos anymore. And in some strong way, he's saying to the men of that church, You need to act like men. You need to be strong. And without without rabbit trailing too far down this path, uh, one of the reasons that we require that men be the leaders in our church is because there's a whole generation of young men who need to be taught that God is calling you to, to lead and be strong. And we're going to hold our church accountable to that. We're going to hold the young men and the men of our church accountable to serving and leading in the church and not passively allowing everybody else to do that for them. Paul challenges the Corinthians that there's something great about being connected to a church team. And this is it. A deep emotional connection happens in the context of a team environment. Deep emotional connection happens when you start serving alongside other people in a team environment. And so the first of two thoughts I have for you from our passage today is this. Uh, Leadership is forged 
through serving the team. Leadership is forged through serving the team. In 1 Corinthians 16, you'll read verses 15 and 18. They say, Now I urge you, brother, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first, uh, were the first converts in Acacia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. There are these three folks from this house who have come to visit Paul. He is distant from the Corinthians. He misses them. And they have filled a hole in his life, at least in the short term. They've given him encouragement and joy and refreshment. They've been a tremendous blessing to him. And Paul is saying, give recognition. These are the people who are going to be leaders in your church. Leadership is not a title. It is a lifestyle whereby through service, a woman or a man is seen as a leader. In many churches, people will get titles and then told, develop skills in concert with these titles. In our church, we've committed ourselves to seeing whether or not somebody is already functioning in their gift area and functioning as a leader so that others will follow them into that ministry. One example might be that two of our current elders have served and given to this church for all seven years of PRISM's existence. Um, the Crabs and the Huskins have had people in their homes uh, more times than I can count. And almost as important, people actually wanted to be in their homes. Uh, and that's how we knew they were leaders in our church. Uh, they were serving, and the ones who are already serving are the ones we're to recognize. These leaders will already be leading before they're giving some type of official office. And do you know what they call a leader without any followers? Just a person going for a walk. See, when we see somebody just going for a walk with nobody following them, that tells us they're probably not a gatherer. They're probably not a leader. And here are some characteristics to look for. And that should mark the life of somebody who's genuinely committed to being a teammate. Because before you can be a team leader, you've got to be a teammate. Before you can be a leader, you've got to be a good follower. And so here are the descriptions given of this house. Uh, one is devotion in service to the team. So in verse 15, it says that this household, this group of people, they were the first converts. And this is no coincidence and partly the reason that our mission statement reads as it does. We are here as a church to revive believers, reach friends, renew culture. So we, we have that sequence because people who are vibrant about their faith, revived believers tend to be people who actually reach friends. They have friends who don't know Christ, and in introducing themselves and their life to others, they discover that they're part of God's mission in the world. And this family was uh, the first converts in this area, and they were zealous about sharing their gifts with everybody. They were devoted in their service to the team. In verse 16, it says that there was a mutual submission to the team that was taking place. And this is important to understand how this works, too. This isn't submission to a leader. 
This is mutual subjection to each other. It's service. It's putting each other's needs ahead of one another. Um, It doesn't mean that there isn't a final authority in the church when we have disputes about doctrine or steps the church is supposed to take. But even that particular case, our elders are really individuals who are part of a collective. They have no individual authority in and of themselves. We are not a church that believes in that the pastor has all the power. And thank God for that because you don't want me with all the power. That's just crazy. You don't want any minister with all the power. That's nuts. What we have is a collective that serve as really the final gate of wisdom about what our church should do and what and how we are going to declare what we believe and think as a church. What this is talking about is not submission to a person, but to each other. See, he even says here in the text, he says, you know, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. It's like a good marriage. Carolyn and I are in submission to each other according to the scriptures, which means I'm putting her needs first, and if things are working right, She's responding, and, and we're, we're kind of a little bit of heaven on earth. We're, we're, we're you, no, 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 you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. And then it's like somebody's got to go first here. And so usually I go ahead and go, no, I don't really. I, uh, we, we have an argument or something, and then we settle that. And, but you get the idea is that, that we're called to a mutual service to each other, a subjection to each other, and that's what leaders do too. And then in verse 18, there is a mutual encouragement that takes place, that we can make a difference. They refreshed Paul's spirit, as well as yours. The the characteristic of this group of people was that, man, everybody they were with, they just wanted to refresh people. They wanted to give encouragement to people. And you can make a difference just by saying, I'm going to be a refreshing change of pace for people in the workplace, at church, but especially in the community of believers. You can be somebody who's just a source of great joy for others. You all saw Pastor Brooks serve our church for three and a half years. He's getting married next weekend. Very excited for him. I miss him. You might imagine that what I miss most would have been his leading of our worship or the pastoral care tone he set in our church or his theological precision or... Maybe it is that he's given, made it possible for me to rest from preaching every couple of months. And all those things were tremendous blessings, no doubt. But all of them pale by comparison to the voice of encouragement he was to me, particularly on Sundays. Uh, he would text me just about every Saturday night to say, really looking forward to hearing your message tomorrow. And this is a guy who works, like, with me every day. So to text that means a lot. In fact, I'd get these texts, and I'd look over at Carolyn, and I'd go, how come you're not excited about my message tomorrow? (laughs) You know, what's up with that? But then inevitably, after the sermon, no, no matter how well or poorly I thought it was delivered, he would come up, put his arm around me after church, and go, great word today, brother. And he meant it. It wasn't like he had to do it. It wasn't a, in his job description when he arrived at the church. You will encourage me every week, pre and after each sermon. He just did this. And, and, you know, it may make you think that I'm a tremendously insecure human being. But I have to tell you, you know, getting encouraging feedback about the thing that I do primarily in my job every week is, 
is really an amazing thing, and, and I miss that. To receive his encouragement was truly refreshing to me, and that's why I shared this verse with him on his final Sunday with us from Philemon 1.7. I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You have that opportunity. This is how we spot people who really care about the team. It's also a way you can be an encouragement to other people, and it's certainly a way others can be an encouragement to you. Leadership is forged through serving the team. The other thing we see in Paul's concluding section of 1 Corinthians is something that all of us need, and that is that love is felt through serving the team. And when we're serving with each other, there's an experience that creates the need and the desire to show affection to one another. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 through 20, it says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which was, of course, the favorite verse of the high school kids in my youth group. And I thought, no, you've got to understand this in context, kids. But seriously, one aspect of team life that you often see when groups work diligently together is physical affection. Have you ever gone to the, the final evening, the final performance of a troupe, uh, a cast of a play or a musical? and watched the exchange of affection and tears and joy and sadness, all of it bottled up on stage as they're saying goodbye to each other, really, after working that closely together to produce something. It's something to see. For those of us who are into sports, when somebody does something spectacular, even the most testosterone-filled athletes in the world throw their arms around each other. The ones from South American countries, the guys even kiss each other. I mean, expressive, care, passion. This is something you see when people work together. It isn't forced. It's a byproduct of a mutual commitment to a mutual goal. And this is also the case in the life of a healthy mission team. And I think it would be fair to say, and it certainly has been my experience, that The level of love felt is proportional to one's commitment to the mission and the people of that mission. When you express little affection or receive little affection, this may be a sign that you aren't very connected, either to the people or to the mission. And I know there are exceptions, and I know there are reasons why some people have difficulty expressing affection or acting emotionally enjoyable to be with you know there are pain in life and sometimes there's been real tragedy that has kept you at a distance and so I don't want to be glib or make you think that there's something wrong with you if this is the case but I will say generally speaking if you express little affection or receive little affection it may be a sign you aren't very connected relationally or missionally with a group of people. The scriptures give evidence of two types of affection expressed between this first century group of believers. In verse 19 it says they express their affection verbally and we're called to do the same. 
they, they are careful to send greetings to each other. They use the word hearty greetings. And, you know, it's not like a hearty soup that's like thick and rich. Uh, the Greek for hearty is pola, which means many, many. It's saying uh, excessive, enthusiastic greetings we bring to you. Many, 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 many greetings. There's a desire to express care, concern, love. These are the kind of things we would hope would take place in the time we set aside each Sunday, but also beyond that in community groups and other places where people in our church would actually say, you know, I want to address you and see how you're doing. I want to actually make connection with you. I I want to to express myself. How, how can I be praying for you? How are you doing? I really want to be here for you. I, I want there to be a genuineness to our fellowship and our friendship. Um, this is the kind of Christian experience that God is calling us to. And in team environments, this is often demonstrated. People who are connected with each other in mission are caring for each other, know what's going on in each other's lives, know when there's trouble and there's difficulty and pain. So we're called to express that verbally, but we're also called to express affection physically. Uh, The kissing was certainly cultural as it is today. There are certain cultures where kissing on the cheek is pretty normative. And man, as an affectionate, touchy-feely kind of guy, those are my kind of places, you know? When, when folks from Latin countries come and visit our church and when they are mem- we have some members who are Latinos and they greet me, it's like, Pastor Chuck, mwah, mwah. And I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then J.T. Tam, who is one of my great friends, he's from Hong Kong, and when I try to hug him, he's like, keep your hands off me, you creepy American. You know, he, uh, you know and so now I just rub his head to make him mad. You know, I'm like, hi, J.T., leave me alone, Chuck. I know you're my pastor, but this is too much. And so, you know, I have to be careful not to overextend my warmth and violate some cultural barriers. But this is the, the thing we're called to. We're, we're called to be culturally warm, whatever that is for you. And it doesn't really matter what that is. The goal is that another would feel and sense the love of Jesus from you. So... If culturally warm for you is a nice, firm handshake and eye contact, then remember that it's about somebody else. It's about you extending affection to somebody else. If it's a hug, uh, make sure it's a hug that they can handle. (laughs) You know what I mean? That it's about them. How you doing? Good to see you. And if I ever, like, make you uncomfortable with my, you know, hugginess, then... Just give me a fist bump and I'll leave you be, all right? I'll, I'll, I'll get the message. Hey, Pastor Chuck, hey, you know. Author Laura Ferguson wrote a terrific piece in Christianity Today about reclaiming touch. And uh, as part of that, we'd say if your resistance to showing affection is linked to your own discomfort being affectionate to others, it may be time to rethink the whole area. She made the case that we need to reclaim touch, to imitate Jesus who drew himself to others and closed the gap between people of all situations. We've unfortunately 
drawn back and widened the gap and put all sorts of restrictions on touch. She wrote, As the church, we have the opportunity to reclaim healthy touch, touch of comfort between men and women, touch of connection between parent and child, touch of hope between new couples, touch of friendship between children. We can emulate Christ in the way he inserted himself into the midst of brokenness and touch the hurting, the lonely, the confused, the fearful, the dead, and the broken. When I was a youth minister, uh, there was a strand of the church culture I was a part of that discouraged me from physically touching the kids at all. And this was in the 90s when it really wasn't as high sense of an issue as it is now. But I have to tell you, if you're doing youth work effectively, there's no way that you're going to be able to do that and completely divorce yourself from physical touch with others. There was one particular young woman in our ministry, and by the time she was in eighth grade, her mother had been married four times. She came to our church, met Jesus, and what she needed more than anything was some positive male relationships in her life. And so myself, a couple others that I worked with, went out of our way to hug her appropriately and to tell her we loved her and that we, and that we were there for her and that we cared for her and, and that she was important to us. We, we said these things, and, and I understand there are some tragedies associated uh, with child abuse that have taken place in all sorts of church settings. So I'm not even saying that that doesn't happen or that you shouldn't as a parent be mindful of the kind of people who lead your kids. But in this instance, I can assure you that the last thing in the world she needed was a man who was going to go stay away from me again. She needed a healthy, physical love connection with people who cared about her and could show her what appropriate relationships are supposed to be between men and women and pastors and women in their church and all these types of things. And so I ignored the legalistic counsel of Southern Christianity and said, you know, in certain instances, we're just going to have to go ahead and risk that outsiders might think that this is a little too warm. Well, 20 years later, I can tell you that the young woman of which I speak ended up working on our church staff when we planted in Florida. She also ended up getting married. I had the privilege of doing the ceremony. She's had four kids and is serving in her church and leading, and God has so blessed and protected her by his grace. But part of the journey for her, I can say and know, has been the affection she felt in Christian community. There's no substitute for it. And there's no place that should be appropriately geared to do that more than the church. We are called to be a part of a team. And love is felt through the relationships made on that team. Leadership is forged as we serve one another. And we use our gifts for the glory of Christ to love him well, to experience his fullness, and then to 
know the joy of walking alongside sisters and brothers who want to experience his love through you too. I conclude our month about gifts with this encouragement from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray.